All right, everyone. Welcome back to another weekly roundup of On the March. And I'm joined, as always, by my debonair co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. Mark, ah, welcome. Debonair. Well, you know, I'm not actually feeling debonair today. We're talking offline. You know, my my hair cutter just, I, I don't know, it just didn't work out this time. It's, it'll be fine. But uh, that's, and that's why I dropped the debonair I, in there for you. I just wanted to give you that little yeah. boost of confidence, you know? Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. But And I'm also... I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make everybody mad because I'm gonna I'm gonna put a song in your head for the weekend that you're not gonna like. Mm. Remember that song? I'm blue, abba dee, abba da, abba dee, Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. So so now it's in your head, and everybody's gonna. Could, but I, but I'm not wearing orange today. Right? It's Bitcoin Friday, but mm. I'm not wearing orange because again, too hot for socks. But I have the socks. Roller coaster. The roller baby. coaster's back. Mm. The damn roller coaster's back, and. You know, it is still summer, so okay, it's still time for roller coasters. But uh, I, I'm not, I'm not pleased mm. by this, you know, recent recent activity because it, you know, we're still in a series of higher highs and higher lows. But we'll, we'll talk more about that later. Yeah, um, yeah. I think you know we had Zahir on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I'm really starting to see a lot more through the lens of the growth of stablecoins and stablecoins market cap relative to total crypto market cap and how that's impacting Bitcoin's price specifically. Um, so I, I wonder if like we, we really use Bitcoin as a, as a bellwether for the space overall. But if you look over in, yeah. in ETH land, I mean, things look pretty bullish over there. And I know we've got a really powerful narrative forming there as we lead up to the merge. But I think this, this idea of stable coins really, uh, you know, sucking a lot of the value as, as kind of a store value in, in crypto land is, is a, it's a more impactful yeah. thing than I initially thought. No, no, I think that's right. Although I, I think, unfortunately, ETH is taking on the chin today too. So um, everything's getting whacked yeah. uh, this morning on Friday. But yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more later. We will. So we will. let's dive into the, the macro. The macro, See baby. See if we can really macro. go down blue. All right. We can get really blue or we can get uplifted. All right. I've got, I've got one big... I'm going to actually... Mark, I want to get your perspective on this chart. Uh, listeners, the interview of this week was with Ben Hunt. And Mike Green. Uh, it was a great, uh, really great conversation just about this idea of it was kicked off by Ben's piece, Hollow Men, Hollow Markets, Hollow World, which is kind of the impact that um, everything that the Fed is doing in terms of manipulating markets and how that actually ripples out not only into financial markets and makes us all feel like there's this feeling of hollow hollowness, like there's not a sense of rules, but that actually ripples out yeah. further than that into life. Right. So I want to show you this chart um, mm -hmm. that that framed a lot of the conversation that we had. Because I want, as I was listening to them talk about it, I was like, I want Mark's opinion on this. Um, but a lot of it was baked around this, right? Yeah. So this is a great chart. This is U.S. wealth growth for wealth growth versus U.S. GDP growth, right? And this goes all the way back from October 1951 to January of 2022. Um, and what's very cool about this is you see overlaid here on the top of the chart, you see at different periods of time, you can see who the Fed chair was at that period of time. Right, uh, so things all look pretty normal, right? In between that 1951 to let's call it 1981, 1986 period, you really start to see a decoupling of um, the orange line on top, which is wealth growth from GDP growth, um, right around the time of the maestro Alan Greenspan, right? And things, and, you know, he's got the dot com bubble here, the housing bubble, QE forever, the pandemic. Each one of these things were kind of these surges. Right, yep. that that different Fed chairs oversaw. Right, so it's Ben Bernanke, it's Janet Yellen, and most recently Jerome Powell. 
What are your kind of takeaways? Yeah, I've had a little time to think about this, but what are your kind of takeaways when yep. you look at this chart? A couple things. So one, uh, terrible chart crime. <laughs> Horrible, right? You can never do a chart longer than 10 years mm. that's not log scale. Mm. So, I mean- And this does look very different in log. <laughs> Mike Green did point that out as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's just, I, I hate long-term charts that aren't mm. log because- they make you feel like everything's – but the difference back when what you can't even see mm-hmm. on the chart is actually almost as big, but but not quite. But but the the, the gap does grow. Mm-hmm. So if one, bad, really bad chart crime. Two, uh, it all comes down to you know 1971 and Richard Nixon. So that's that's when the wheels started to come off because we we went from. Uh, a currency that had backing to a currency that that could be created by fiat out of, out of thin air, and and then worse, it it's it's a debt illusion, right? This is this is not wealth in the sense of of you can't create wealth by printing money, and you can't create wealth by levering up a society, but but it shows up as wealth. Because the value, the nominal value of assets goes up. And I don't know, it's, 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 it's a funny thing. You know, if, if you look at the amount of debt we had back in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, uh, after the collapse and, and the rebuild, uh, it, was, it was a normal level. And, and for every new dollar of debt, you actually did get some, some new GDP. Now we're down to like each incremental dollar of debt is producing fraction uh, of a dollar of GDP. And so, look, the the Greenspan era um, did usher in irrational exuberance, right? Mm. He even pointed it out. And it is irrational that, that we allow this kind of you know, separation from the haves and the have-nots. And I've been talking about this this pyramid problem for a long time. It's, it's like the all-seeing eye on our on our money. It's a pyramid for a reason, right? I mean, the, the tippy top is is what matters. And the Fed job, really, really since its inception, 1913, is to do this chart. It's to steal the wealth from the masses through this inflation that's supposed to be good for you. I said somebody yesterday. On a, I was doing a podcast, and, and they're like, "But, but inflation, you know, low level inflation is is good for us, right?" Like, no, no, don't believe that. The the idea that they say there should be a target. I mean, even two percent. Why is something that over a thirty year period steals half of your purchasing power? Why would that be good for you? Mm. Just just in theory, why would that be good for you? What would be good for you is if businesses grew over that period of time. But just to devalue the currency over time is not good for mm. you. Well, I guess the, well, what would you say to the, because if I had to steel man the argument for why 2% inflation would be good is overall, it's good when like one person's spending is another person's income, right? So if we have 2% inflation, that's, you know, on the margin, huh? Uh, encouraging people to spend, right? Because your purchasing power gets diminished, it's like the opposite of a deflationary currency where you're encouraged to save. You want to spend, which at the end of the day, 
you know, that creates, um, that, that makes for better businesses and that makes for a more humming economy than an economy where everyone's kind of hoarding, right? Which is the opposite. That would be a, us having a deflationary currency. That, that's what I would maybe say to that. What would you say to that? No, look, it's, it's an interesting, it's definitely an interesting argument. Mm-hmm. And I guess I would argue that, that the impetus to spend mm-hmm. comes not from people thinking their money is being devalued, but because they're hungry or they want a roof over their head mm. or they want a fancy car mm. or they want a, you know, a, a nice watch, yeah. that there's a human element of desire. Some have less than others, right? There are perf- people who are perfectly happy. They don't want fancy watches. They don't want expensive cars. They, they're perfectly happy. They, no, they still have to eat yep. and they still have to be sheltered and they still have to, you know, produce. And, and then there are other people who, who like to produce new stuff, right? There are people who like to create things. There are other people who are happy just, you know, sitting at a desk and, and doing a job. But I'll argue that it's, it's the natural inclination of an economy to grow. The hoarding part, I, you know, I, I, I take your point. It, it's certainly possible that if everybody hoarded and if nobody invested, you know, it's, it's the argument I, I have against the maxis, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, they're like, "Oh, everyone should you know, should take your Bitcoin off exchanges and and shut down these CFI lenders." I'm like, no, lending is good. If I have an asset and I don't need it right this second, putting it in an institution, a bank or a, a lender, and letting them lend it to someone else who wants to do something with it trade or build or or you know build a house or, or whatever that's a good thing that's what makes economies grow so i'll argue it's the it's the process of fractional reserve banking i don't know people hate that uh, that makes economies better mm. but but I, I take your point i think we could we could spend the whole hour talking about this and i think it'd be good but people probably get get tired of of us you know Jibber Ban- jabber. Not bantering, but but jibber jabber. No, no, but it's 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 a dialogue and debate in search of yeah. truth that's important, right? That we should dialogue on, you know, we talk about moving to a deflationary currency. You know, people are like, oh, Bitcoin you know, should be the world reserve currency. Okay, let's let's click. We just made that happen. So now there's one currency, it's deflationary, there's only so much of it. And Okay, well, what happens? Uh, well, we've got the same problem. Yeah. Right, 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 yeah. right now in the current system, we got the same problem. Right. The price would go up massively, right? Mm-hmm. Because everyone would be suddenly fighting to get it. But the people at the top who have it, would, which is even worse, right. the Gini coefficient in, and it's not, a, it's not a, the, the, the distribution of ownership rather than Gini coefficient right. of, in, in Bitcoin is way worse. It's way worse. Than in yeah. real life. It's and way what, worse. What I would, so, what the only thing I'll say about the Gini coefficient too is a, a lot, you, there's this statistic out there, right, where um, mainstream media will often cite this and say Bitcoin is some of the most concentrated. They'll, they'll look at like it's, they use some crazy statistic, right? It's like the top 1% of wallets own 80% of the supply. They include exchange wallets in there. So if, if you're getting, exactly. that, if you're getting that statistic from mainstream media, like, yeah. That's not incorrect, but your point is still well taken that the distribution is still a problem. It's lazy journalism. Yeah. Lazy right, journalism. I agree. Yeah. Um, 
I've actually got something. I mean, Coinbase has 60 million clients. Right. 60 million. Correct. Yeah. Not right. one. There's not one. There's not one owner. It's it's 60 million. But but it's still really, really highly concentrated. And and it's a pro and so there's so many things that are so, it's so funny. You know, we we all, everyone in this industry, spend time railing on those guys. Mm-hmm. Right, the Fed chairs, you know, the big bad guys, you know, the Fed chairs, the the, the politicians, mm. you know, the big business owners. You know, there's this this whole thing that I remember back in the whatever election it was, 2008 election or yeah. something. Uh, somebody went down to Charlotte for the DNC and started interviewing people and said, "What do you think about capitalism?" And people were saying. Capitalism should be illegal. Uh, uh, Profits should be illegal. Uh, yeah. I'm like, what? No, uh, I, okay, so I'm so different background today, right? I'm I'm in um, Montana. Uh, my my whole family lives out here. I had a really interesting. I'll protect you know the names of the innocent and everything, but it's a small gathering out here. We we had a a debate a couple nights ago about this whole idea that you're getting into capitalism versus like you know politics in America, and like there was some. Really surprising things that got said, I thought, or some some attitudes that really surprised me. And I want to lead into all that. And I'm, I'm going to connect all these dots, I promise. Mark, what's that quote about um, 45 degree line? It's like the Harry Markowitz quote, 45 degree line is not something that you find in nature. You know, it was like what he found with Bernie Madoff, like a 45 degree line going up is something that's suspicious. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know what yeah. I'm talking? No, I think, I think that's what you said. I think, okay. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's exactly okay. the quote. I, I could look it up, but I think that's exactly so the quote. So one- Can't be found in nature. 45 degree line can't be found in nature, where you can find something that isn't a 45 degree line, but something that looks extremely consistent actually is not the orange line here, but that blue line, which is the GDP line. And I had I I didn't go into the the conversation with Mike and Ben thinking like this, but if you think about U.S. GDP, it's decelerating growth, but it is still pretty remarkably consistent growth over a very long period of time. And I had never really looked at that as a as an issue, but I I came away from this conversation looking at that as something that's a little bit unnatural, right? And it's like, do do I just think that it's been straight up into the right growth for the last? you know, 70, 100 years? Or if left to its own devices, would there be blips, right? Would there be blips? And there are like minor blips on this blue line here. But do you see what I'm kind of getting at here? Which is, I think oh yeah, I yeah, think yeah. that actually, yeah. I never looked at that very steady GDP growth as a problem. But that's what all these people up here, these Fed chairs, this, this wealth gap, that's what they're trying to solve for. That's what they're trying to fix, right? They demand that life is is very complicated, right? Uh, we live in a in a very complex world, um, but I think the average person in the world demands or wants something that doesn't feel very complex, something that feels very secure. So we have these people mm-hmm. in in seats of power in institutions. We'll, we'll pick on the Federal Reserve here, but I think there's a bunch of institutions that you could name that we've basically charged with making life seem more secure and complex than it is in reality. That is that that was the the conclusion that I actually walked away from this conversation with because at the end of the day I think what we're looking at here what what jumps out at me at the start this is a story of of hubris right this is a story of one institution thinking that they can smooth that GDP line right they can use low interest rates they can leverage the wealth effect to make 
our complicated world seem simpler and have this number go up and to the right. What do you think about that idea? That's an idea I've kind of been working on for a little while. Uh, look, I, I think there's a number of, of nuggets in there that are really interesting. The, the sedation of the masses has been going on for millennia, right? That, that's actually not new. I mean, my own, you know, religion, there's, there's, there's some historical literature on the fact that Constantine kind of made up the whole thing to, you know, uh, give it to, to the masses as an opiate. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I thought it was really interesting that, that the sun God's, uh, birthday was the same as Jesus's. Mm -hmm. Just had no idea that was true, but learn that in, in Rome of all places. So, um, really interesting uh, construct. And, and I think it goes really to the presence of these um, elite groups, right? This string of people is a direct descendant of the Rothschilds, mm. right? This, this, this goes back hundreds of years. You, know, you go to the Bank of Netherlands, or Netherlands National Bank, or whatever they called it, in 1607, formed by the, the Rothschild clan. And it was the first central bank. And its job was to, to do this, right? Was to take the wealth from the masses through taxes and money creation and inflation and use it to finance their wars so they could acquire, right? Portugal was the big dog, and then Spain conquered them, and the Netherlands, financing, conquered them. Or I guess France was in there too. France and then the, the Netherlands came in. I mean, think about it. The Netherlands had the world reserve currency for almost 80 years. That's funny. It's, it's a tiny yeah, little place. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not a really big place. But, but they, they created this central bank and this ability to create fiat currency then a clan split off and went to London to yeah to London and set up you know the Bank of England in 170 something mm -hmm. and same thing happened and guess what they won they invented the steamship and maybe they didn't invent it but they used the steamship to uh, have a better navy and they became the superpowers mm -hmm. and then in 1913 you know a pretty long time after you know, our republic was created. Um, you have this kind of process, and it and it is. We talked about this. I don't know if it was last week or two weeks ago, but there's a movie um, by Michael Moore, uh, Roger and Me. Yeah, mm -hmm. Roger and Me, uh, about the GM guy, and in it, there's this clip and I don't I don't remember how long it is three minutes four minutes something like that where he goes through all of the dictators we've put in we meaning the CIA have installed all around the world just to top them mm. to create fear because fear makes people consume mm. which is amazing so 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 what's happening right now we were, you know, we're having a recession, you know, threats of recession. What happens? War! There's a war! We are, we're at war! And people are afraid. Be afraid. Consume. Yeah. And that 
that is all part of the plan too. I, so that 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 di- digresses. A, from I, the, I I I would I I I hear you on that. I think what the point. I have a slightly different view on it, which is that I think humanity writ large, like the market demand for what humanity wants is a secure, like security. And and that and security means like a bunch of different things. Like they want a secure economy that is not very volatile and going up and to the right, but they also want a secure vision of like a framework for how the world works, right? And that could be in the form of religion. I actually, I flagged this because this was a little seed I planted at the end of last week's episode, John Unitas. Uh, he's a guy. He's he's got a little yeah. study called "Why Most Published Research Findings Are False." Look into this. It is yeah. it's crazy. crazy. It's absolutely no. It's crazy. It's 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 absolutely he, insane. He kicked and crazy. off this thing called the replicability crisis. It actually, began in psychology, but is now spreading to most other fields of medicine. Which is one tenet of science, right? Mm-hmm. Is that you're supposed to be able to repeat findings that one person does. They're supposed to farm it out yeah. to this group of people. They can repeat it independently and that, you know, legitimize it, then becomes science. And what they found was you can't actually repeat, especially in psychology, like the majority of the stuff that's out there. And it's actually even worse than that. It's even worse than that. So he, they found that um, they, they basically took 20 of, uh, you know, when they start to go through and they're starting to figure out that these things are, that some of these studies are false, they basically went through. Um, and they took a look at 20 of the most popular, uh, popularly cited uh, studies and the what that were later proven mm-hmm. to be false. And it was like, you know, the hit rate on these things was not, oh, it's 50-50, which you might think, right? It's, it was like 19 of them were, were wrong, like the most widely cited ones. No, Michael, it's, it's absolutely frightening. Think about that. 19 to 20, so almost, <laughs> almost every single one of the largest studies – are just provably false. And and it goes to mm-hmm. incentives, right? Same reason that those Fed chairs, you know, they have an incentive because uh, they share in, in the wealth that they, you know, steal up to the top. Uh, cronyism, right? Is is that's that's the nature of, of the beast. But but it's the incentives. And and it's two incentives that are really bad. One is the publisher perish, right? If you work in an academic institution, yep. you either publish. Yep. Or you're out, right? Right, because they have to generate original knowledge, and that that is that is what a university is supposed to be, and that's and that's why tenure is actually a really important thing, because you're supposed to be able to think independently, without bias, and if your view disagrees with the president or the provost, you shouldn't be able to be dismissed because you have a different view. You should be able to pursue whatever angle you want, but in order to get tenure. You gotta, you gotta mm-hmm. publish. You gotta create these, these, these uh, journal things because it gives you the university prestige. So there's an incentive if you're a struggling, you know, uh, professor and you don't really have a great idea and you don't really have something. You do it. You, you spend all this time doing an experiment and it doesn't work. Jeez, if I got rid of those four data points, it works. Let's get rid of those four mm-hmm. data points. And there's an amazing one on this, and it's it actually kind of changed my life um, in terms of health and and food. Um, there was a I can't remember which president it was, but he had a heart attack, and uh, everyone was freaked out. Right? The nation was freaked out, and and uh, he survived, obviously. But 
the margarine industry uh, basically funded a study to prove that his heart attack and heart attacks in general were caused by consumption of uh, saturated Butter. fat. But yeah, butter and meat. And, and so, but here's the crazy thing, right? Is so you have an industry that was created from, from yeah. waste products, right? Seed oils are, are waste products, you know, cottonseed oil in particular, but, but all of them are, are, are waste oils, meaning they should not actually be consumed. So you whip it up into Crisco or, or margarine and Nobody really wants to eat it because it looks kind of gross and it feels kind of gross. And But hey, we're going to do this study. We're going to prove countries that eat a lot of saturated fat uh, have higher heart disease. So they did the study and it was a scatter plot. There was no correlation. So they're like, huh, but if we get rid of these seven countries and only use these 13, oh, that's a perfect correlation. That's what they did. And so this study right? Changed everything, right? We, we made, we made fat the enemy, you know, take fat out and put in sugar. Oh yeah. That, that was a really good thing. Snack wells was mm -hmm. a really good thing. And I, you know, I love the, the Jerry, Se you know, you're too young to watch Seinfeld, but Seinfeld, you know, the show, it, there was this one where they were all eating, you know, low fat mm -hmm. yogurt, you know, frozen yogurt, ice cream, basically ice cream loaded with sugar. And he, he's like, I'm, I'm getting pudgy. I don't know. I'm eating low. I mean, not eating any fat. Well, yeah, but you're eating, you know, the devil sugar. Um, so anyway, but it just, it was provably false, but no one challenged it because the president decreed. Why? Because the margin industry paid huge, I mean, huge mm -hmm. amounts of money to get this installed. And then, you know, a couple of years later, they inverted the food pyramid, and now they tell us we're supposed to eat 13 servings of bread yeah. every day. Seriously? I'm not even sure I could eat yeah. 13 servings of bread every day. I, the, the connection that I want to make- You, you definitely def shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, you, I don't think you should. But the, to your point, right? I mean, that was something, that food pyramid, I mean, that was shown to me in like grade school, you know, about this is this is the way it goes. So the, the point of- the point of pointing these things out, right? Like what, why some of these things, like what's the connection here in between this wealth gap that we're showing, the John Unitas study, what you're talking about with like health and some, some of this wrong information. I think this framework that I'm starting to accept internally is I think there's an enormous demand in the human psyche for certainty. I think there's an uncertain world. And I think mm -hmm. the best business since the dawn of time is being an exporter of certainty a creator of certainty. And I and I think that huh. comes in many forms. I think it's come in the form of government. I think it's come in the form of religion. I think it's come in the form of institutions. I think it's come in the form of science. What many people, the reason I'm like doing little jabs on picking at science a little bit here is I think it's gotten overused in the past like couple of years is this like torch of, of immutability, right? Like can't touch it if it's science, but there are problems oh. with it. So no, 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 no. Well, actually, that's the right. inverse of science. So, that's the anti-science. Science challenges right. so, everything. So, everything, so my point is, right? I think there are these exporters of, of certainty out there. And people get really upset if you challenge their export of certainty because they're doing a really good job providing their service, right? Like if you, back when people challenged religion, 
people got really upset with you, man. Yeah. They got like, this is my framework, oh, man. Yeah. This is my worldview. This was how they understood the world. So if you challenge that, people get very upset. So I just want to like, I want to pl- plant that very as a little angry. flag for people listening. Like just watch for exporters of, of certainty. Um, and, and the, the hallmark of that is if you, if you question them. Oh, I, yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's my new hashtag exporters yeah. of certainty. And the reason I'm looking down is I'm, I'm, I am pulling up a, a chart that we're going to cool. talk about in a little bit. So um, let's, let's okay, talk about ahead. our favorite exporter of certainty because we've been having a very high level philosophical talk, but I do want to get your take on the FOMC, right? So yeah, the FOMC this week, uh, nah. you know, we got our, we got our favorite uh, job owning federal reserve. I do think um, this, is, I'll, I'll read this quote from uh, Joseph Wang, who, uh, you know, my colleague Jack Farley has on his show all the time, uh, but, you know, but his take was Fed seems to be getting cold feet. It's beginning to worry about over tightening when inflation is still at 8.5%. Policy always has trade-offs. If the fear of economic weakness is very great, then the outcome will be biased towards higher inflation. Now, here's the quote that actually came from the Fed minutes. Many participants remarked that in view of the constantly changing nature of the economic environment and the existence of long and variable lags in monetary policy's effect on the economy, it was also a risk that the committee could tighten the stance of policy by more than necessary to restore price stability. That's the quote. Um, so what, what do you think about this? I mean, I, you, you could read these minutes as dovish, potentially signaling a, a fear or at least an acknowledgement that over-tightening, mm-hmm. right? The, the the medicine could be worse than the disease uh, type thing. What do you think about what happened this week? You know, I, I always struggle with the minutes because I, I think they are simply part of the job owning, right? I think they are carefully crafted and orchestrated to elicit said response. And I think they are, they're one of the trial mm-hmm. balloons that the Fed does, right? It's, it's like, why, why do we, why do we need five or six Fed governors out on the speaker tour mm-hmm. every every month. I'm really interested in what they have to say. Like I, my favorite quote, my friend, right? I remember a day when I didn't know the name of the central banker and I long for that day to return, right? I, I don't really care about these people. So why are they always out there? And they're out there because they float ideas and they get reaction, right? In social media and, 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 and traditional media. And so I, I think I think the minutes are a little bit of uh, that yeah. finger in the wind, like oh let, let's let's put this out there, let's put those words out there, and let's see what happens, and let's see what reaction we get, and then maybe we don't have to do what we said we're going to do if if we get the market to do our work for us. And I I struggle right now with um, policy errors writ large, right? You know, we, we had the policy error of tariffs, you know, a couple of years ago, tremendous policy error. We, we, you know, tariffs have never worked, not, not ever in history that I'm aware of. And, and yet we, we made that policy error. And what did it do? It led to decline in global activity. It led to declining GDP now in a whole bunch of places. Um, okay. So that's policy error. Now we've got this policy error of restricting liquidity. It's not just the Fed. We have the greatest withdrawal of liquidity on a global basis in history. Now, history is only since like 1981. We don't have a lot of data. We didn't keep the data before that, but that, that's 81 mm. a long time. And collectively around the world, everybody is withdrawing liquidity. Well, in a world where growth is slowing and globalization 
is a dirty word now, and we're back to nationalism and populism, why would you want to withdraw liquidity? Mm. And I'd come back to, to incentives. I mean, what's the incentive for the Fed through the minutes here to say that we need to restore price stability at all costs? Like, what, What's the incentive for that? Mm. Well, to your point, it could be certainty that people fear the uncertainty of, you know, a high inflation environment. But that that inflation environment, as we've talked about endlessly, and I, I talk about endlessly and people get tired of it, is not inflation the way inflation normally happens, Econ 101, where there's excess demand and limited supply or limited supply and normal demand that rise cause price to rise. It's that you all believe this woman, Stephanie Kelton, or maybe you used her as a scapegoat, yeah. probably used yeah. her as a scapegoat, to do your bidding, which was we need to devalue this debt. We need to create so much money, and you've got the charts. Piece of a pug. Piece of a pug. We are one brain. It's it's (laughs) it's crazy. It's crazy, and you know that is just not normal. That we went from eight hundred billion to seven trillion, trillion. And and trillion. Are you talking about the the balance sheet there, Mark? Just, Just those numbers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the balance sheet. Yeah. The balance sheet chart. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the balance sheet chart. And 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 the the one right after, you know, the the lockdowns, it's straight vertical, right? Greatest creation, you know, infusion of liquidity and money, right? 50% of all the the dollars in 248 years of the republic. And now they're talking about, oh well, we're, we're going to slow money supply growth. And, and they did, right? Money supply growth actually went negative um, month over, year, over, year over year for the first time in 40 years mm. now, at least 40 years. But to, to the graph's point, it doesn't look like any tightening right. to me, right? They, they stopped the growth, just like they stopped the growth in um, 2018, in 19, the first time that Jerome right. the Hawk. Yeah, he's been like that. That's what he was. <laughs> Jerome, Jerome the Hawk gets appointed, right? He gets appointed by Trump. And he is the Hawk. And, you know, he's buttoned up and he's got his suit and tie. And, and he's always drawn as, as an image of a Hawk. And he comes in and threatens to raise rates. And the markets are like, whoa. And the markets go down. And Trump's like, hey, stop that. Stop that. And what does he do? It's like it's like the scene in in Animal House with the angel and the devil on the shoulder, and the dove says, "Jerome, become Jay, J A Y, Jay the dove," and he became the dove, and and then the markets took off again. Well, then lockdowns happen and things get ugly, and he's just the letter J, and he's got a hoodie on, and he's the pusher, right? He's on the corner handing out shots of stimulus. You know, forget vaccines. He was he was given straight injections of of money to everybody, and that was a huge mistake, a huge policy error. And now you have the effect of it, 
which is we've devalued our currency that we use to buy everything, whether it's a cup of coffee or a dinner out or, you know, I, I, I told the story too many times, but I took uh, my son-in-law to uh, the street taco place. And the food's good, but it's not like amazing. And it was $54 for two people in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And we had water. So it's, it's not even like yeah, we had a, a drink yeah. and they charged us five bucks for that. It was five and, bucks. And this is, I actually posted good. a picture of this. <laughs> the $12 beers in, in New York. Yeah. I mean, that's. Uh... Well, no, I'm just talking oh, yeah. like oh, a, yeah. a Coke or something that they're, they're charging you five yeah. bucks for. It cost them a nickel. And I, I, I t- actually tweeted this out, right? Which was, I ordered a side of guac. And the bowl was like this big. I mean, it was tiny, five dollars. Like what? Well, I should have gotten the avocado business. I mean, incredible. And it's all you guys eating avocado it's us, toast. It's us millennials, and we're, all, we're all to blame for this. I, you, you, that's right. Yeah. It's all the but evil you know, millennials. When you talk, when you talk to no, people about this, uh, who aren't, who don't care about this kind of stuff, right? Who don't, who don't want to, who, or you know, it's just people. Just it's all. The, whoever the pick your least favorite politician, right? If you don't like Biden, then this is Biden's fault. If you don't like Trump, yeah. this is Trump's fault. And, exactly. and that's and that's literally the beginning yeah. and end of the analysis. And and you know, even you know, I, I actually feel yes. it then when when I talk to some of my friends about this, like, well, it's not necessarily one politician's fault. This is the result of a you know 40, 50 year trend of monitor and, and you know, as soon as I get two sentences into that explanation, they start looking at me like, okay, bud. Okay, buddy, there with your little tinfoil yeah. hat conspiracy. You yeah, know what I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I just, that's that's as far as it. And you know what? That's as far as it's ever going to get with um, with with the average person because they don't they don't care about uh, understand. You know, I, well, no, because they they are they are they're consumers of certainty. They're consumers of certainty. Is the wrong word. That's what they are. Well, no, no, they're, they're oh, that's great. Oh, that's that's yeah. good too. They're consumers of certainty, but they're consumers of of that message from yeah. media and media and this whole thing about media is controlled by the left. No media is just controlled mm. and it's whoever's in, in charge. So it doesn't matter which side it's just the media. I is have a different, yeah. Gonna I have a different framework for media that I want to run by you and get your, get your take. Um, just as a, as a, a person who operates a media company, obviously at a much smaller scale than like mainstream media, right? No, nobody from the Federal Reserve taps my shoulder, you know. Uh, but what I what I cut my framework for media is that media is kind of media is a mirror. Like we spend a lot of time thinking about like what type of information do people want to consume, and then we direct resources towards doing reporting yeah. on that. And and so that's why I I I do I would push back a little bit on this. There obviously is a a reinforcing thing, right? I think you can use media. To, to push a certain agenda or message over a short period of time, but you can't over a long period of time. You can't expect to be in business. Well, no, Michael, you're talking mm. about good media I versus bad, evil media yeah. versus state-owned media, right? So what I'm talking about, and, and someone pointed this out, there is not one, mm-hmm. not one criticizer of the Fed. There are five or six, I don't remember the number, sycophant like cheerleaders of the Fed, right? And there's this one guy, and I actually had, used to have lunch with him all the time. He would, his son went to Duke and, and he'd come down and we'd have lunch. And, and he was the one who always published in the Wall Street Journal, literally like the day before the Fed was doing something, 
And he always knew. I go, how do you know? Well, they gave him the stuff ahead of everybody else. And as, as long as he promised to write a positive story that they wanted, I'm like, that's not journalism. That's not media. That is, that is mm-hmm. propaganda. And so there's a difference, I think, between state-owned and state-influenced, like CCTV in, in China. Yeah. State-owned, state-influenced. You, yeah. you don't get it. But, or Russia, but there are at peril of life and limb, other sources of media and information that, that get out there and they get tamped down really hard depending on where you are. And and even even in the US, right? If if you look what's happened on Twitter, right? If you say something that disagrees with certain groups, boom, you just shut down. Like Rudy Havenstein. I love Rudy. I mean, come on. <laughs> the guy is amazing. Maybe it's not even a guy. Maybe it's I, a girl. I don't know. I send um, Rudy like monthly but, DMs, being like, "Could you please come on the show?" And he's always like, "Grant, if you're listening, if you're listening to this, he's always like, if I did a show, it'd be Grant Williams first. And I was like, "Damn, I I can't even be mad about that because his show's so damn, good. <laughs> I'm like, I'd probably do that too. Damn, uh, but yeah, love you, Rudy. Damn. Well, Rudy, come on. I I'm I'm as good as Grant. I got as much gray hair. I I am as nice as Grant, almost. <laughs> he really almost. is. Grant's really nice. He's a lovely man. And um, um but he, you are Grant's too. the best. I love Grant. He's a lot. And, and again, and 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 that's the thing, right? If I could have Grant's accent, I I've, then my, my best would friend come is a, is an English guy, uh, and I always tell him I'm like, he's, and he's six six, and oh. I was like, buddy, you were playing tennis with a net down, just to let just to just to let you know, you were playing yeah. tennis with yeah, a yeah, net yeah, yeah. down. Yeah, it's my just man. it's just not. It's not fair. It's not fair. And I you know that that's my thing, right? When I graduated from college in, in 85, you know, I was pre-med. I decided not to. Really? Go to med I didn't school. know that. You're two pre-med? jobs you can get. You can be. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm a biology and chemistry guy. I was going to med school. I took the MCATs. Like, by the way, for anyone who's listening, if you're not going to go to med school, do not take the MCATs. It's brutal. <laughs> it's brutal. And My and sister's about did, to start studying. And I actually did really well. But I just couldn't answer the question, why do you want to be a doctor? Like, because I want to drive a Porsche and work eight days a month in the ED. That sounds like a good life to me. And that's a bad answer. So, and mostly it was because I'd met a girl and I didn't want to be seven we years. Go. And when the we're going to get married. Out, baby. Met a girl. It's always a girl. It's always, no, it's always a girl. It's always a girl. And, and you know, we've been married for 36 years. So, you know what's f- so funny about that is I actually almost went down that same path. I also was like, I didn't really know what I want to do. I knew I was kind of interested in, I was a psych, you know, a classic psych yeah. double major. And I was like, ah, what do I want to do? Like, I was like, I don't really, I'm not interested in business. Like, uh, what am I? I I'll be, a, I'll, maybe I'll be a doctor because I like that as a, and I didn't end up doing that because yeah. I didn't also want to yeah, wait the eight years for them. But yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But, but my thing was that there are two jobs, right? I could be a healthcare consultant. Or a pharmaceutical sales rep, not six four and handsome, not going to be it's a pharmaceutical sales though, Mark. So I actually, <laughs> I know you. I, I love you. I love you. But the I, I did take the job as a, a healthcare consultant. But the partner was like, you know, you've taken no business classes, like none. I actually, it's not. I did take one accounting class, but I took it at St. Mary's College across the street from Notre Dame, and it was me and thirty six girls. 
I joke, I didn't learn any counting, but I got a lot of numbers, right? Ha ha ha. Um, but, but, and it was, it was, it was interesting. And, and, and I don't, some people get mad when I talk about this, but I thought it was interesting. the only time in my life I could ever actually understand what prejudice was like. Cause you walk into the dining hall in an all girls school and people look at you. Not because you're good look, because you're different. And it's a weird feeling. And again, it's not like living your whole life as a person of color or I get it. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize that. I'm not trying to say I understand that. But it was the first time I actually ever even thought, wow, what would it be like to be different mm. well, all the time? Yeah. I digress. But. I, I want to I wanna just bring it back one because we've been having a lot of great high-level discussion here, but I want to get your thoughts on just the market reaction to the FOMC and just what crypto has done specifically. Because I, I got to be honest, like usually I kind of have a, a gut sense that's probably wrong anyway, but I'm very confused when I look at uh, at least price action here. So we talked about Bitcoin, the entire crypto market has kind of slid. There's actually been a bit of a Bit of a just a bummer, I would say. In uh, you know the, the dog coins, there's a resurgence in like Doge and Shiba Inu, and you know even even more even more so than that. I mean, there are I don't know if you know this. There's a on Shiba. There's like people are trying to roll out uh, you know dexes uh, and and like NFT projects, like building stuff on Shiba as if it's some sort of legitimate thing. And, and at the same time, as we see the dog coins, GME, AMC. Those are, but like the 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 original meme stocks are starting to react as well, and everything's just kind of chopping sideways. And I just don't, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know what to make of it. So, what's your take? A couple things. So, one, uh, I was on uh, CNBC the the Tuesday after Elon's Saturday Night Live thing, and you know it's Brian Sullivan, and uh, actually it might even been the Monday. And uh, he said, you know, what do you think? What do you think about this, this Dogecoin? I said, it is everything that's wrong with these markets. Everything, right? It's a joke. It's worthless. There's no utility. You got a, a charlatan pumping it on, on television and it needs, it, it needs to go to zero. Now, since that time, I think it was 69 cents then, it's down to like 8 cents. It's a lot. I mean, not zero yet. It's going to zero. And look, I I declared on this show, right? What are the four weeks ago? The end of crypto winter. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. But my problem is, and what I'm still uncomfortable about, is I I really do believe that that the bear market can't end until Doge and Shiba are zero. Because they're wrong. They're absolutely wrong. And, and, and the meme coins, the same thing is so long as there are degenerate gamblers, right? Because that's, that's what you are. If you are speculating in an asset simply because the price is going up because other people are buying it, that is not investing. That is not trading. Mm -hmm. That is gambling. And there's no other explanation for it. And that's not healthy for markets. I have the same feeling of I have the same uh, feeling as you. Um, I'm I'm not I'm just not sure at this point they're ever going to go to zero. But I actually have the same thought about a lot of um, 
I feel like I keep picking on this. I, I'll caveat this by saying I'm super bullish on NFTs. I have an enormous amount of belief uh, there. But it, like I see some of these projects, and it's just like they're so untethered from reality that it's. I mean, and there are some there are some things that like looking at it, it you just know it doesn't make sense. You you you, you know that, and we're not yeah. in, we're not in euphoria anymore. You, I, I'm at the point I can't ignore that it doesn't make sense. Like it. These things are, um, and it's more than it does to make sense. And it's some concept that, yeah. okay, if it plays out, it'll be really big. So that's why I understand where the valuation is, what it is. I, I just can't even assign a logical explanation for why it is. So I'm, I'm with you. No, no, no. But, but here's what's happening. You, you asked, how do we link it with the Fed? And here's, here's what's happened. So, so we are in a low volume summer short squeeze in markets broadly. And this happens. Okay, right? if, you, if you look over yeah. time particularly in August, you, you get these low volume. And, and in fact, you can go back and you can look at the, the Tesla announcements, right? When they're going to announce a debt deal, equity deal, launch of a new product, almost always, not 100%, but almost always on a holiday event, right? The day before 4th of July, the day before Thanksgiving, during uh, you know a, a big holiday week in in summer, uh, Christmas vacation. Yeah. Go back and look; it's amazing. Because why do you do that? Well, if you if a lot of people are short, you want information to come out when they're all away, so that you can squeeze. So you can have machines squeeze those out. So what we've got now because. Volumes in July and August are one third lower than the rest of the year. We were trading three billion shares a day. Now we're down to two, and that doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a lot. I mean, it's a big difference. And look, I'm about you know later today. I'm heading for my final part of my vacation. Nice. Uh, I'm taking you know uh, Will out to to Utah. We're coming your way. We're heading to Utah. We're gonna do the national parks, and then nice. I'm speaking in a conference on Thursday, and. And so everyone is on vacation in August. I mean, everyone. So the fact that we're having this, this low volume melt up, not surprising. Then you get that interpretation of the Fed minutes as dovish, like that they're getting ready. One more, one more turn of the screw and then they're going to stop. And boom. So we got, we got Bed Bath & Beyond. Bed Bath & Beyond. It's a train wreck. It's, I mean, and GameStop. Look, I... I now go to GameStop, believe it or not. I actually go to GameStop with my son and we buy Pokemon cards and that that's what we and you know, it's ten dollars of revenue. My ten dollars of revenue is not gonna save them. Um yeah. and there's no for anyone else in the store. Not anybody. But I will say the people that they hire are amazing. They mm. know games. Like my son started playing this other game and he asked the guy the guy noticed he had a shirt on or something and he said, Hey, do you do you do you play this? He's like, Yeah. So, well, have you ever tried this and you have to do this? And my son's eyes just went like like huge because this guy actually plays that game a lot. So that that was cool. But I still think as a stock and AMC and all, all the stuff, but Doze and Shiba are are unique in that they don't even have that, no. right? They don't they don't no. have anything. Yeah. They have nothing. And yes, are people back to speculating? Yes. So then why is the rest of the stuff suddenly tanking? Well, I think what people actually did is they actually read the minutes like you just did. And when you actually read the minutes, 
they don't sound very dovish. They actually sound a little bit like policy error-ish. And if you're going to continue to withdraw liquidity from a slowing economy, and look, I don't know if you saw the New York Empire number, lowest in history, mm. okay? Uh, consumer confidence, lowest in history. Um, it, it ticked up a little off the bottom, but it was the lowest in history. Um, forward prices paid index part of, of CPI, lowest in 40 years. So there's this whole series of economic data that are pointing to shit show coming. And you, know, you got GDP now and everybody else saying, no, 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 no. third quarter is going to be positive. Like, because you reversed some inventory. Oh, that was the other thing. Inventories. Oh my God. You got to look at the inventory chart. It's off the charts. And when companies resort to putting stuff in a warehouse as, as sales, it's like when, when, when GM puts a bunch of cars on lots of the dealers and calls them sold. I'm like, I'm looking at them as I fly over them. They're, they're not sold, but they're sold to us. No, they're, they're inventory. So there's some bad stuff coming. So I'm with you, it. Mark. I'm with you. That was a really good. I, I honestly, I, I, that's just context that I never would have had. Yeah, a low volume uh, squeeze. One, one thing that I want to say, and then I got to wrap up because I am in Montana, I'm about to go flat fishing. Uh, trying to look at that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. dagger to the heart. <laughs> I mean, like, where's my? Yeah, that whole shelf is fly fishing books. I mean, oh, oh. really? All right. Well, I'll, I'll do my best. I want to mention one thing about BlackBerry. Everyone yeah. should look into this story. This is a crazy story reported by Zero Hedge. Uh, the BlackBerry squeeze, right? Ryan Cohen was involved in that, but also a 20-year-old who goes to, I'm looking at it now, I think USC owned 6.1% of the stock. 20-year-old. It's an unbelievable story. No, it's, it's crazy. And he wrote this whole investor letter. He's like activist hedge fund, uh, like very aware of like the what the derivatives market was pricing in in terms of a squeeze. And he was talking about leveraging that to fund the company. It's an unbelievable story. He made like $100 million. It's like $100 million from this. And anyway, just look up this story. It's a crazy large – I'll link it in the show notes. It's from Zero Hedge. So, you know. Wow. I, but but uh, yeah, just look it up. It's a really interesting story. Got to wrap there. Unfortunately, Mark, it's been really fun. All right. Cheers, my friend. 